Welcome to the Pacific Spine and Pain Society podcast for residents, fellows, and new attendings. A casual conversation, like the ones had after a presentation, in the floral suite, or in the clinic, designed to give you insight about interventional spine, pain medicine, neuromodulation, regenerative medicine, and minimally invasive spine techniques. And now, here's your host, Dr. Daniel Orlovich. PSPS audience, super excited today. We have a very distinguished guest who's graciously given us a time, and he will share insight and information with you. Dr. Chakravarthi from UCSD, we're very honored to have you. Go ahead and tell the listeners out there who may not know who you are, which that would be a surprise, a little bit about yourself, please. Yeah, thanks, Dan. Um, super excited about doing this podcast with you. So Chakravarti, usually people confuse it for a Bengali last name. So Bharti is actually V-A-R-T-H-Y. And why I mentioned that is, you know, most South Indians by birth have very long last names. So I was pleasantly blessed with that too. But I grew up in Buffalo, New York, pretty much spent most of my life there. I've been a big upstate New York guy. And then, you know, most of my training was on the East Coast anesthesia pain train but really have spent a good part of my life traveling all over the world, interacting with all kinds of fun people during my research. And I have a pretty cool job now at UCSD. I'm a a faculty there where three days of the week, I split my time between patients in San Diego as well as the VA. And the other, what is arguably supposed to be two days, ends up being four days and then bleeds into the other days, is running a NIH-funded, industry-funded research program that's actually gotten to be quite successful from where I started about four years ago. So really excited to share my experiences in how to kind of build an academic program and, and be successful at translational research. Wonderful. I'll start with a hard-hitting question. Who has better weather, upstate New York or San Diego? That's an easy one. <laughs> the amount of times in med school that I used to complain about having to shovel the snow But I got to say, sometimes the seasons are really nice because you get to appreciate when you have beautiful 75 degree weather all year round, how lucky you are. But, you know, sometimes I miss the snow. I I was a big, avid, you know, after school snow football person with a lot of my friends. So I loved growing up in upstate New York. That was just a really fun place and a lot of wonderful people up there. So definitely. And I'll try the, the beach life and nice sunsets. Yeah, I wish I, I wish I could get around to the beach more. You know, it's too busy with all the other things that I'm involved in. But yeah, it's it's really awesome to live in a place like San Diego. So I can't complain. Awesome. And I know they treat you very well and you're very happy there. And the majority of the time, obviously, you're not at the beach. You're doing the academic medicine. Tell us kind of a little bit the insight. Talk to us about building up the academic career in pain medicine. Yeah, you know, look, for all of those people listening, I mean, the culmination of a successful academic career is really a pretty much a lifelong effort. And you look at my own training. So, you know, I started thinking about research in in high school. And I still remember doing some of my first projects when I was in junior in high school, where I spent some time at Roswell Park Cancer Institute doing some protein work. And at that time, I was so passionate about really discovery and impact that research has on a, on a global front. So after that, I, I went to college with the idea that, you know, I always had a, some kind of a interest in biology, but, you know, the truth was at University of Chicago, I really did enjoy a lot of math and finance. And in fact, biology was kind of the thing that I defaulted to in terms of trying to figure out a good career path. But during that college experience, it was really nice to go to a big liberal arts school where 
you had the ability to explore a lot of different things, you know, humanities, you were involved in economics and math. And in fact, I ended up around my second year, I really ended up saying, okay, look, I want to pursue a, a path towards medicine, but I wasn't quite really wanting to give up the interest in science. And so kind of had got my college work done in three years. And my last year, I had the option of, you know, starting the next part of grad school or sticking around. So I did another year in finance. And subsequent to that, I gotten into the MD PhD program at SUNY Buffalo. So which was really a very defining moment in, I would say, my career trajectory in terms of how important those three, three and a half years were in terms of my training and the way I was thinking. So with these MD PhD programs, you start two years and then you go off for a PhD thesis. And at that time, I wanted to do cancer immunology. I was fortunate to get into the lab of Dr. Paul Knight, who, who's by himself really big name in anesthesiology, has done a lot of stuff on gastric aspiration and all of this stuff. So he used to make this comment by the end of grad school, he'd have like a pot that would be like ashes of problem students. And I would just brew over the top, it would be his thing. But we got along great. I mean, he was such a pivotal part of how mentorship can drive folks to success. And one of the key take-homes in, in that experience was that he let me really flourish in terms of my ideas and help me guide my ideas to successful things. You know, sometimes we think about mentorship and there's broad definitions of that. It may not be simply just handing somebody things, but really engaging them in a very meaningful way. So, you know, I spent two years there, then went to CDC, came back and explored things. I had my first startup in grad school looking at quantum dot technology. And in that three-year PhD, I got a lot done, published a bunch of papers and wrote a lot of grants. So a lot of wonderful experiences, but one I, I think really summed it up. So he had invited me He's a really avid sailor and he'd done a lot of stuff during, he was one of the, he played rugby for the national team. He was very well-rounded, incredibly gifted anesthesiologist and physician and scientist. So, you know, he was like, one day he was like, oh, Chris, you know, you should just come down and participate in some sailing. And I was like, oh, this has got to be just some like wine and cheese thing with him and his wife. And so I get down there and he's got like seven or eight people on a 40 foot Morsi that he's, we've got on the, on the Niagara Lake. And he's like, well, he's like, well, this is not sailing, sailing. We're going to go race boats. <laughs> and I was like, Dr. Knight, I have no idea what to do for racing boats. I thought you were just, let me have a nice like little post picnic on your boat. Yeah. So man, what an experience that was. Like, you know, I started, I did it two years with him. I was in the foredeck putting up spinnakers and you know, I think that that experience with him and that taught me a little bit about how important identification of one's passion is. You know, I think a lot of people ask, like, how do you get a lot done in a certain amount of time? Or, And I, I think a lot of it is well-balanced life with things that you're really passionate about. You can find it as a hobby as opposed to work. And so those are kind of the life lessons we used to learn on the boat and we raced multiple years. So it was such a really holistic experience, a very kind of looking at research, medicine, work-life balance, all of that stuff. I really learned from him in terms of how I wanted to emulate my life. And so I went from there to Yale affiliate for my intern year, and then went to Hopkins for anesthesia, then came back to Mass General in Boston, and then finally landed a very cool job. So 
that transition from fellowship to job was really, I think, critical because I had such a wealth of life experience and I knew what I wanted from that point forward on the type of career that I wanted to create. So obviously, I think one of the take home messages, you know, you were the mentee in that role, but now I imagine you're the mentor to many people besides encouraging them to say, hey, find your passion. What kind of other bits of information would you tell your mentees nowadays? Yeah, you know, look, so I go back to this point when I was thinking about post fellowship jobs, you really have to the two things that I've concluded was that in life experiences can be really enriching. And the broader your life experiences are outside of medicine, I trained in a PhD that started with viral immunology, but I picked up a lot of engineering tidbits, right? So I collaborated with people that were engineering heavy. I learned to use my math and physics background in engineering. And today we're doing some really, I think, probably groundbreaking research that will hopefully in the next two, three years really get to the to the public forum. But being able to do that and collaborate starts with taking those initiatives early on in your training. The second part is that I think a lot of folks, the challenge that comes in for most people is understanding what they want to do and where they want to go. So for example, the probably the single most important asset or value that you have is time. And people sometimes don't realize that, but it's extremely important. And when you're trying to create a career for yourself and coming out of fellowship, beyond the salaries that these different jobs have, it's how do you allocate time and use it in a meaningful way to help enrich your passion and your and things that you want to pursue in terms of both the clinical side as well as research. So, you know, we talk a lot about protected time, but I feel when you look at the statistics of the number of folks in our space and just in general that are retained in academic medicine, it's just declining rapidly because there is a huge pressure for clinical production over meaningful ways of trying to integrate research and translational research to address important problems. So the challenge there is that eventually innovation cycles get really disrupted. Like all of the major things that we think about in medicine started with clinician scientists thinking about how do I improve a select problem in my practice? And you're modeling that in the bench or modeling that in clinical research. So for me, I was really fortunate that when I looked at different work programs all over the country, protected time wasn't just a concept. It was something that was very realistic in the job that I took. And I started with only about a 40% clinical commitment at UCSD when I first started at 60% research time, which was highly critical. I mean, those two years, you know, I wrote on average probably 60 to 70 grants within a span of a year to two years, whether it was small to large. But it took a lot of work and a lot of repeated submissions, understanding the challenges with how grants are funded and positioning yourself from an NIH perspective to really say, okay, this is meaningful or not meaningful. And, you know, you look at some of the most successful academicians, they still write a lot of stuff. So you're competing with folks that are putting in a ton of time and effort. But what that 60% protected time did for me is it changed the course of my trajectory of my career. And in the sense that I was able to establish research programs, I was able to use the skill sets that I developed in my MD-PhD program in a way that 
you know, we're doing everything from drug trials to device development. So to be able to do that, that, that requires really broadening the breadth of one's education as they're going through the process of their training. Talk to us more about the maintaining the protected time. You obviously started out with 60% protected time, but are there kind of ways that programs offer protective time, but they're really not? Or are there things that you look for more in particular, like the support or somebody on the back end, you know, helping fax over the grants again, or things like that, that people can kind of look for when they look at different programs? Yeah. So, you know, look, why does a department offer somebody protective time? And part of that is understanding that rationale, right? Every academic department wants to create a research-focused, innovation-focused department with faculty. The challenge is that protective time is also an investment in somebody based on a set of skills that they're bringing that warrants that they should use that protective time effectively, right? So I think it's part of preparing yourself to ask for that too, right? So are you writing papers? Are you engaged in clinical research? Are you developing a skill set that allows you to transition to being a successful independent investigator? And those skills, sometimes, you know, there are a lot of opportunities with FAIR grants or NIH T32 fellowships and eventually getting to the point of being a successful K awardee, a lot of that comes with an investment from the department, but it's really a preparation ahead of time that you are putting in really to say, okay, I'm a good candidate for this. And therefore, at the point of acceptance, I'm using my time effectively and carving out something of meaningful data that's going to help me become an independent researcher. So one part is really, I do emphasize that, you know, for the non-traditional track that you take that effort to learn as much as you can. The second part is, you know, retaining protected time is really a a value of how much grant money and industry funding you're bringing in. I, I think there's no, no way to, you know, change that formula in terms of the expectation. So The pressure to do that is extremely high. But I think once you've gotten yourself into good collaborations and really in the pain space, given the amount of new innovation and therapies, it's, it's almost a, it's just a wonderful time to be in it if you're thinking about it from a research perspective. Nice. Yeah, I agree. The timing is perfect. How do you kind of, obviously you're going in, you have a breadth of experience, a wealth of experience, background, finance, biology you know, sailing, all these disparate things. But when you sit down and say, here's what I want in terms of what would make me happy in my academic career, how do you kind of narrow that to say, this is what I want to do research on. This is my passion versus kind of what the NIH wants or what the device company wants to see or what the department wants to see. How do you kind of reconcile maybe those two separate things that might, you know, might not kind of be on the same page? Yeah. You know, look, I think two parts to that. I think great research is partially a way of thinking, right? You can apply research training to any problem that is that, you know, if you take the scientific method and approach it in a systematic way, you can apply it to any problem that you are interested in in studying. Now, clearly there are certain areas that are probably more conducive to you know, certainly the idea of like, hey, I'm going to have a successful grant, or I'm going to be able to create a career in this area or of interest. That's true. 
But I think more the key things when we're you're really starting out for those folks that don't have a lot of experience is finding the right mentorship. And mentorship can be very powerful, right? Because you one, you're getting folks to help you getting on certain papers and topics that you may not have thought that you'd be interested in the past, but you're you're like, oh wow, like I didn't realize that neuromodulation has got so much going on. Or I didn't realize that, you know, cannabis research has so much going on, or psychedelic research is so interesting. So finding the right mentor who's got an established track record is extremely critical because they can guide your career in that way. The second part to that, I think, is, you know, it's tailoring expectations. Not everybody will start out with a big project. And part of that is doing the time to slowly build up to that. And you may contribute at the early part of a day that you get admin time to slowly start contributing. You work with a a bigger lab or folks that have a, a track record for publishing you work with them and you're slowly contributing. You're learning how things are done. You're learning how to write com- write well, communicate well in a, a scientific way. And I, I think those are all very important in building that momentum that isn't, you know, one to two year career, but really a lifetime of developing that skill set. I love it. And that skill set stays with you, obviously. At, at what point does one decide to pivot or what point do they kind of sense that, hey, this is an interesting topic that I don't have much background in? but I have the experience and kind of have the way to think about it that I'd like to learn more about that maybe the chair of the division or maybe the other people you've collaborated with before might not share those similar interests. Yeah. You know, look, I think that you would, most people are pretty surprised that how supportive a chair or division head can be if they get the sense that you're using your time productively and advancing something or, And at the end of the day, the reality is the currency that really makes a difference is are you contributing something to warrant your protected time in the department? That's the fact of the matter. Independent of the topic, you have to be able to show that if you're going to not do clinical time, that you're using that time productively by adding value to the department. That's the practical part of it. Now, you know, in my own, own career, my choices... To me, neuromodulation was a really a natural appeal because I had an engineering background. I was I'm very much into technology and science. And to me, that's a really interesting bridge of clinical to science and the integration. And now that's really expanded into drug development. I've looked at, we're developing a lot of newer compounds that we think may be a, a suitable use in the pain space. And we've also certainly looked at other forms of device development in terms of different materials that can be used for different types of transdermal delivery, et cetera. But part of that is, you know, to be successful in that topic, I had to convince all of the folks that I was collaborating with that there was an interest that went beyond just me getting on a, my name on a paper. And part of that skill set I had developed, right? I had gone through a lot of the engineering part of it in grad school where I'd shown a track record for publishing something so that if I'd went to a lab that I wanted to collaborate on and I had some ideas on new device development, that person wasn't just thinking, hey, this guy just coming in, giving me the idea, I'm going to develop it and he's going to essentially just apply it. That I'm part of that process of attending lab meetings and in working with students and trying to provide a clinical viewpoint to that discussion. And I think it's really powerful that when a lot of physicians ask, well, you know, I really want to collaborate, 
part of collaboration, it's got to be very hands-on. I think a lot of people assume that, you know, just the idea of being clinically active is good enough. No, I think you, you really have to think about phrasing what are those things that are the problems that you're trying to solve and getting into the weeds of as much as you can on what those engineers are essentially developing. So I would count myself as much an engineer as a physician and or scientist. Definitely. You're able to speak kind of both those languages and understand those worlds of fundamental concepts. Yeah, absolutely. Tell us, let's transition a little bit, no pun intended, to the translational research program. Tell us what makes a good one, what makes a bad one. Yeah, you know, look, I think that the heart of translational research is really what is the problem that you're studying? So I'll give you a good example. There are a lot of great researchers that have won Nobel Prizes for different things that looked at everything from protein structures to, you know, this first sodium potassium channel that got through x-ray crystallography. When NIH actually created the first MD-PhD program, the concept was how do you model clinical problems in a basic science setting with the eventual idea to translate that finding into something clinically meaningful. So why that's so important is when you think about ultimately getting grant funding and trying to create an academic career and trying to create a, a value for how you are unique, one of the best components of those grant applications is your clinical perspective, right? And having a strong clinical perspective and a strong clinical background gives you a better understanding of the problems that you may want to address on a basic science component. So let's say, for example, I'll give you one. Today, I look at the neuromodulation space and I see a plethora of randomized controlled trials. You see newer and newer devices that are being developed all over the world. And yet one of the missing segments in that is when you think about penetration of those devices globally, it's still about 100,000 implants that give or take are happening every year. And yet one-fifth of the human population, you know, has some form of acute to chronic pain. So, you know, you start to think, well, what is the problem is that you're trying to solve beyond getting out of the waveforms and in all of the different device modalities is ultimately cost, right? Cost is a huge prohibitive factor in large-scale use of these types of devices to solve that. So when you take that and then you say, well, how do I apply my skill sets, you bring the engineering and ideas to how do I create devices that are low cost, that can ultimately penetrate a larger segment of the market. And that's the, that once you've identified that problem, then you can essentially build around it. And that's a very translational concept, right? So you created, you looked at something clinically that's very meaningful and you're asking a question and then you're using the resources to essentially address that problem in a first principle manner. So that to me, I think is really at the heart of translational research is you've defined a clinical problem and you're really using the basic science to address or develop a solution to that. Yeah, definitely. I love that you brought it up. I know a lot of people want to rush to the solution and it sounds like you're encouraging us to take a step back and say, wait a minute, let's define the problem. Yeah, you know, I think we in the pain space are at an interesting time where we see a lot of innovation. And sometimes people are trying to figure out where that innovation fits into the larger context of what's the clinical utilization of something, right? I create a new therapy. Well, okay, let me figure out how this works after I've actually got it into market or 
I've adopted it. And, you know, I think that makes it challenging because there so many of these therapies come and go partially because I, I think innovation should be addressing an issue. And then therefore you're engineering a solution based on what is at the front end of a clinical issue that you're resolving. Instead of kind of engineering it to create something and then create the problem. Yeah, exactly. Say, hey, we fixed it. Since you're big into technology and obviously have a ton of experience research, what do you see kind of on the horizon without you know giving away any specific patented information? I think that what is going to be important is the pain space is in an interesting time where the emphasis on patient selection is never going to be as important as what we do in the next three to five years, because as therapies have their value, I think that they're going to, the emphasis on good history, physical exam, and the basic tenet of being a physician or a pain physician is going to be highly critical. And that's going to help drive the right patient to these right therapies. So I foresee that there's going to be a lot of going back to basics in terms of understanding pain presentations and saying, okay, somebody fits this model algorithmically for this indication based on imaging and physical exam. And within that context, if you look at one, as we expand into understanding what are the ways that we can detect pain measurements, that's going to certainly change. But I also think the era of where automation is really accelerating some of these things is going to be something that a lot of us are in our lifetime are going to totally change that paradigm. So could one see in three to five years, the role of a completely automated programming on the SCS side? Absolutely. Do I think that in another seven to 10 years, we are going to really change how access to therapy is going to be done in the pain space? Absolutely. Do I also see a maturation of our field similar to where cardiology was in the 50s, where they had a lot of new technology, but there was greater standardization on and a view of where level of evidence made decision-making a lot easier, better in certain types of patients? Absolutely. So I think it's a wonderful time to be in the pain space. I just, I think we're really, do I think even that pain as a field is going to be its own residency? I would really love that. I think it would really bring that concept of standardization across training and preparation for where our space is going. But I, I think all of those changes are likely going to happen within probably 10, 15 years. Wow. So coming on the pipeline soon. Yeah. I mean, I think without a doubt, I can't imagine the you know, some of the stuff that is being developed from industries is absolutely incredible. I mean, I think they're really having a concept that of how fast technology can, I mean, look at, have you ever felt that literally you're in a new product getting launched every six to 12 months? And what are the space in medicine? Is that ever happening? I mean, it's literally a new concept and a new product within six to 12 months. So the expectation for a lot of pain physicians, you, you really have to keep up with it and try to adapt a lot of that stuff into meaningful clinical decision making. What kind of words of advice do you have to the people? Obviously, industry is publishing a lot. Industry, like you said, bringing a lot to the market, you know, solving the problems that we're seeing. For someone who is digesting that information, what kind of advice or wisdom would you share with or tell them? So I come back to this question, what is industry solving that is critical, right? So let me give you a good example. 
industries always has this fine balance between they're a profit incentivized institution. And that's always going to drive the decision makings in terms of how they position new products and their value in the marketplace. However, the question that is where as leaders of this field and for future leaders and folks that are thinking about how do I make an impact, the best things that you can always do is highlight what are the clinical issues that need to be solved. And sometimes there's not a lot of crosstalk till after the fact in terms of adoption of these therapies, right? So, you know, if you sit 10 guys in a room, can they agree what are the real big things that need to be resolved for X, Y, and Z? And I think that's where the question around how do we accelerate good, meaningful clinical outcomes in our space is having that deeper set of conversations, right? So what are the things that we can resolve? How are these things relevant? How good is the data? And I think that those things are going to be really important going forward. I think academic industry and physician partnerships are really going to help drive the innovation cycle in the next five years, especially in our space. So to me, I, I think it's important that for folks that are getting into this space, and I tell this to my fellows, read the primary manuscripts. Countless times people just look at these abstracts and in, in the way we consume information on everything digital today, it's really hard not to do that, right? You're like, literally take everything for face value. So I think that when you're starting, keep a very open mindset to things, learn as much as you possibly can, go to the primary literature, evaluate it for yourself to let yourself understand what is meaningful data and what's not and qualify it. If you think that something isn't truly meaningful and you think, hey, a randomized control trial validating it and how it's designed is higher, lower level of evidence than a post-market study, that's okay. I mean, that's part of your ability to discern what the data comes out and how the level of evidence impacts your clinical practice. So unless we do that, then essentially we're not going to have industry be held to a higher standard in terms of the quality of data that allows them to have clinical utilization. Would you recommend kind of any spaces, you know, like you said, the 10 people in the room discussing if it actually addresses a real clinical problem, if it's good data? Are there any spaces, any meetings, any kind of, you know, digital platforms that you'd recommend people engage with or go to? Yeah, you know, look, I think societies are going to play a huge role in that. I think certainly Aspen has done a great job. PSPS has done an amazing job. Even NANS and ASIP. I think all of these different societies are trying to address important things. Would I love to see one society for all of the pain space? Absolutely. But, you know, we are where we're at. But I also think that this is a really important component for training programs, right? So, you know, you have a huge plethora of physicians that are pain trained. Some are advanced interventional trained based on interest. And that's where they go to folks that may be much more on the pharmacologic side. But somewhere you have to standardize that. And there's got to be a common point of conversation and training and expectation that, you know, every graduate should feel like they're confident in understanding the subtleties of one waveform versus another or one level of evidence versus another for any one drug or another in the pain space. And I think for that to truly happen, the bigger questions around is a year enough for training or are we really getting to the point where when you have such multidisciplinary folks all coming into the pain space, maybe it's time for a 
coordinated residency program that allows people to kind of get their feet really in depth before they make that transition to a work environment. Yeah, definitely. Because right now, I mean, one year doesn't seem like... Oh, absolutely not. I mean, the amount of surgical skills to just understanding the pharmacology to the multidisciplinary care that we're providing, it's a lot for somebody to absorb within a year, right? And then you're kind of going on to the next step without clearly, especially then you want to tag on a research component to that. It's a lot of lot of pressure to try to do that within a year and still be successful coming out. Definitely. Dr. Truck Ravarthi, tell us any closing words, anything you'd like to tell the listeners in the PSPS land? You know, look, I think I'm really encouraged and excited about the generation of folks that are coming into training and going out and the excitement around the pain space. I think there's just such a really cool amount of technology. And it's always been interesting, like why sometimes the academic side of pain and being in a department sometimes isn't as, as I would say, appealing coming out as a new fellow. But I can tell you that, you know, the most important things that I feel Note when you reflect back in your life is that you pursued the things that you're passionate about. And I was always told from my mentor that, you know, financial incentives shouldn't drive decisions that ultimately that's a byproduct of you doing something that you really love and enjoy. And that's as important in the decisions that you make. So I would say for folks that are listening, keep an open mind and a broad education and lots of different things can really enrich your journey through whatever career that you decide to take. But, you know, knowing what you want to know and how you get to that point is so important because that you've spent a lot of time training. So you really want to focus on the things that help you develop the skill sets that you think are going to be meaningful for your patients, as well as, you know, making sure you have a good work-life balance, but drive good decisions based on ultimately what's good for patients. That's extremely critical. Couldn't have said it better myself. Thank you so much for taking the time, the clinician, scientist, founder, engineer. We appreciate you taking the time with us tonight. Thanks, Dan. This is really fun. Thank you for listening. We want to continue this engagement. Please visit the PSPS website, join the email newsletter, watch the webinars, or attend the conference. Thank you.